we would have never allowed that release of that record into that Christian marketplace if we knew that it was going to destroy the rest of our lives because it's pretty much what it did. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, but it did. Twenty-five years ago, in October of 1998, a new album released that changed the way Christian music sounded for several years on Christian radio, and it introduced a band that, frankly, just didn't fit the mold. The album was Anybody Out There, the debut from the band Burlap to Cashmere. I was working at a Christian radio station at the time of their meteoric rise and their unexpected sudden stop. The story of this band is so fascinating to me. It's a bunch of guys from Brooklyn who just wanted to make folk rock music and yet found themselves becoming one of the biggest hit makers in the Christian music industry, an industry they didn't even know existed. And yet, in so many ways, there was culture clash. They just didn't fit the mold of what a Christian artist looked like or sounded like. And today we get to hear their story from their mouths. We're hanging out and interviewing Burlap to Cashmere on this Season 7, Episode 2 of Green Room Door, a production of UTR Media. Hey, I'm Dave Trout. Thanks for hanging out here. And I'm so excited that we get to spend this time with Burlap. UTR has been partnering with Burlap for most of 2023 in honor of the 25th anniversary of their national debut. We were able to partner with Burlap on a successful Kickstarter campaign earlier this year that's going to bring about a brand new live album and a new documentary film. We're so thrilled to work with them, and one of the big rewards in the campaign was to come to New York City and hang out for the Burlap Fan Weekend, which we put on in early September. And at that fan weekend, we sat down in the historic venue, The Bitter End, in Lower Manhattan, and we got to talk to the guys, and we're going to take some questions from the audience as well. Uh, we're going to hear, this is sort of in order of the answers that are given, these five original Burlap band members, Teddy, the band's drummer, Robbie, who's the bass player, Johnny, the lead guitarist, Mike, another guitarist, and from Steven, who's a guitarist and lead vocalist. Now, in case you are a newcomer to their music, before we head to New York City at the bitter end to talk to Burlap, uh, let's play a clip of their song Other Country, which came out in 2011. Here's Burlap to Cashmere. So we're going um, to start right. with some Q&A time with the band, and uh, I, I want to, I, I have a couple starter questions. You guys be thinking of some questions are going to roam the, the crowd here to grab some questions. Um, can, you, can you guys just start with telling me about the bitter end and how, for those who don't know, kind of the history between Burlap and this venue? Well, I guess I'll take them that one. Yeah, you are. Um, we started playing here in 96. Yeah. 95? 95. And I feel like it was just Jameson got us a gig here. But we wanted to play because all of our heroes played here. And we would come and we would sit at the bar right here. We'd come early. Um, 
just to, to chat with Kenny Gorka, who would just sit us down and say, ah, oh, uh, me and uh, Jimi Hendrix had Corvettes, and we used to race them over the Brooklyn Bridge, and, and uh, you know, one time uh, Paul Simon was here, and we, we loved it. We yeah. would just sit like children hearing a bedtime story and be like, you know, all our heroes, this, this is the place, and that's why we wanted to play here. Oh, here it goes. Rob, we don't care what you have to say. <laughs> um, I brought it up earlier to the guys. I, I, I still have the $10 bill at the end of the night after our first performance here as a full band. And it was back in 95. And we all made $10 each. So <laughs> I, still, I, I still have that $10 bill saved. So. Mind you, another reason why we played here was yes. financial, because we were a seven-piece band, and this was like the only spot you could play where you got 100% of the door. You got a percentage everywhere else, and Jameson knew that. So that's another reason why we played here. That doesn't happen anymore. Okay, so um, give me, a, give me a, a story about um, you guys just kind of on the... As you got signed, and and the steps of growth as a band, as you found yourself sort of getting bigger stages, bigger festivals, seeing bigger crowds, bigger audience, like uh, for a lot of bands, that's that's a that's a very 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 long uh, grind. And you guys put in a lot of years of work that nobody knew about. But be between the time that you became public. And the time that everyone fell in love with you seemed like it happened really fast. It took a long time. We were on the road for years in a, in a van, and we were playing with bands that were not uh, Christian market bands. It was yeah. like Rat Dog and a lot of hippie bands. That's right. Yeah, that started we in the jam scene. In the from jam good scene. homes. Yeah, from good homes. Uh, and then eventually with Train, we were doing a lot of dates with Train uh, before they got like huge. Yeah. And um, they used to let us use their stuff because they were just like, they looked like they had been through the ringer and they wanted no more. We, it was, I think it was like their last leg. They were about to implode. And then I guess they stuck through and they got that hit. But um, it looked like probably appeared from the outside like it happened overnight. But we were on the road for so long. But this place was the, this place back then when those shows would get sold out, I can only describe it to you as in a panic attack because there was a line that would go all the way around Thompson, right? Was it Thompson right there? And that would go all the way around to Thompson Street and we would have to do two, three nights here. And this is before COVID. So we're talking about this place being packed like like sardines. Yeah. So that I would add to um, what Johnny's saying. I remember specifically here, it, we were talking about this yesterday in the car right over, that um, at first it started off family and friends coming to see us. And then it became family, friends, and fans. And then it became family, friends, fans, and a lot of people in suits who looked really serious. And these, were the <laughs> these were the business people. And there came a point where a lot of the family and friends couldn't get in anymore because it became so filled up with uh, executives, literally from A to Z, from every record company that there was in New York City at the time. We actually had a list called the Burlap to Kashmir hit list, which was every record, major record company from A to Z that we were having come to see us play one month after the next month after the next month. And, and that's how we knew it was getting very serious with, amongst ourselves. It, it was uh, less than a year later uh, when we formed as a full band in 95. Less than a year later, we had all these labels that were interested in signing Burlap. And uh, next thing you know, uh, the record label without lawyers, yeah. they were negotiating. It took about like six months. And during that time, it was, this, I believe, the summer of, after we signed, in the spring of uh, 97, April 28th, I think that was the date. Um, we recorded a live album right here, live at the Bitter End, and there was a record plant mobile studio that parked themselves, a trail outside. They wired up this whole place, and uh, we had something to go on tour with. Yeah. So we had this uh, live album, 
and we hit the road for a few months. We came back in October, and uh, October is when we went into the Hip Factory uh, to record the Anybody Out There album. Mm. Yeah. Add to that. By the way, that live record is still up on the wall over there. Yes. Um, that the live record was the, so when we started uh, showcasing for record companies, there was a guy Tom Lewis who eventually became our manager, but he was he was the most exuberant of all the suits. He wasn't a suit. He was the one crazy guy in jeans and a belly t-shirt <laughs> um, who was he, he, he loved the band so much you could see his passion for the band he tried to sign us at yeah. Universal where he was at and the head of Universal Doug Morris said we, no they're a wedding band so that he wasn't wrong. <laughs> so so that that couldn't happen. He couldn't sign us at his label. But he loved the band so much that when we signed with A and M, he gave the plan to A and M Records. And his plan was at that time, and this is ninety eight, when you released a record, the major labels threw it to radio and looked at the first week. If it was a good week, they were like, okay, maybe we keep going with this. If it wasn't a good week, you were gone like that. That's it. The, the hundreds of thousands that they invested in your record, whatever it was, if you had a bad first week, you were gone. So Tom's plan was for us to come here, make a live record, and as Robbie said, it was a record plant remote truck, and I find the, the difference in time periods and technology incredible because that recording truck was like $80,000 and here today if you want to make a very similar recording it's 50 bucks yeah so you know it's incredible you know what that you know what what, what happened in that time but the plan was to come and make a live EP because we were a live band we didn't know how to be anything but a live band at that time make a live EP and tour on that EP so that when we put our studio record out we were guaranteed to have a good first week because we had been out there grinding touring building up a fan base of people that would buy our studio record and it worked we had a great first week second week third week yeah like in my life you know because I, because I was, I, I was in Christian radio, so I was kind of in that sub market or that that subculture. So I kind of always recognized you guys as a quote Christian band. Hmm. But you know, come to find out, uh, you know, I, it was only probably a year or so after I kind of was following your music. That and and Teddy, you mentioned this uh, yes a couple days ago, and I. I'm pretty sure you're right. Like I didn't. There, I, let's just say that this got fact-checked. I think Burlap was the first ever what they would call a reverse crossover band. Like yeah. you got signed to a mainstream instead of go, being signed to a Christian label and then going to a mainstream to kind of be kind of get the mainstream attention. You guys got the mainstream record label deal first, yeah. then the Christians kind of latched on. It was actually, not to mention the bitter ending, but it was actually here, we were all backstage, and, oh. I, and I'll never forget it, we were all back there, the, the show was sold out, it was insane, the energy in the room was nuts, we got back there, and some tall guy comes in hysterical crying. This was just so beautiful. And I'm like, who is this guy? It was Steve Taylor. <laughs> and uh, he was like, we want to sign you guys to to, you know, we, we want to sign you guys to a gospel label. And I don't think any of us knew what that was. Yeah. To us, gospel meant Al Green. Right. We're like, oh, yeah, right. gospel label, yeah. You know, and then we got signed to that label, and then the madness ensued from yeah. there. You know? Yeah, yeah. But that's, yeah. A, that's interesting, yeah. Yeah, that was a time before we know it. They put us on a plane. We had we had it to Nashville, yeah. and we did a performance. I think uh, during GMA a week, right? GMA. It was before GMA week. Oh, before that. We, anyway, we did a performance. Um, we trashed the hotel room. We trashed the hotel room like like eight hundred. Oh, particularly my room was the one that was most trashed. Well, the Ryman the Ryman Theater. I, I recall was that the performance. The I Ryman, believe? yeah, the Ryman, right? No. 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 We went out and played Cafe Milano. Oh, right. For that. Ryman came after. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, but yeah. you, but but Steve told me in the interview that, that he remembers that performance you're talking about, the Ryman at GMA week. Oh, the Ryman was because because that was where all the the Christian radio people were there, the Christian labels were there. Yes, and that for most of them it was the first time they heard you. Right. Okay, so let me, yeah. let me just chime in here real quick. So yeah. <laughs> our, our booking agent was a big deal, Scott Clayton at the time. He had us touring before all this happened, and Johnny said we were touring way before the bitter end and all that, um, and and this, the, the succession of all, of all that evolved after that. But um, Scott Clayton was at the, at the Ryman Auditorium when we played, uh. and when they stood on their feet and gave us a standing ovation, I remember having a quick conversation with Scott, and he looked at me and he's like, Basically, and I don't remember exactly what he said, but all our work was in vain. You guys are now a Christian band. Oh. <laughs> and he had this really depressed look on his face, wow. like shock and awe, like, you know, you know. I he could see that it me. in that moment. Wow. No, yeah. He like, said, he said, he's, he, I remember, he was like, this is... And that's because he knew, because with his experience, I, yeah. I know, I'm sure you know who he booked, right? He booked, I think he booked John Mayer, now Kings of Leon. At that time, he, he, he was, no, was small. He was, he was coming up, but, but now he knew. Huge. But he, he, could, knew. he never saw a reaction like that. Yeah. And he also knew what that meant for, you know, we didn't have that. He he had experience. We didn't have hindsight. We were yeah. just... It, we, we we would have never allowed that release of that record into that Christian marketplace if we knew that it was going to destroy the rest of our lives because it's pretty much what it did. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, but it, it did. It did. It did because we couldn't, we couldn't, we can, after that, it was just anybody who heard a record was just like, oh yeah, but they're a Christian band. And if somebody would change Wikipedia, but somebody else would go back and change it right away and be like, no, born again Christian band. And we're like, well, we're not that though. We never were. Yeah. But we were, we were whoever liked our music. We were their band. Yeah. And yes. I think that's what's most important. Yeah. We tried very hard, as Steve said, to sh straddle that line. Uh, it wasn't Steve that said it, someone else said it, the True Tone guy. To straddle that line at that time, we grew up as kids that loved the Beatles and popular music. We didn't really know much about Christian music. Certain of us knew about it, but we didn't know that much about it. And, and you know, these Christian labels start showing up to the shows. And we have a conversation about it with our manager, and our manager says, well, this is a whole other market, and it's a big market, and we can work that market too. And we had, you know, this spiritual content in our lyrics and stuff like that, so we were like... It was Judith Bolts who came down. It was Judith and Lauren and here, Steve. And yeah. Here, yeah, right here. They were sitting right where Andre's sitting right now. And, and I remember, you know, that conversation. It's like, do we want to do this? It's like another market. Why not? We were like, okay, cool. We had no idea that what would happen after that is that the mainstream label would sit on it because they just didn't get it yeah. until here again. Al Cafaro, the president of A&M Records, sitting at that table. Standing on that table. Standing, like dancing on the table. And came to all of us with tears in his eyes again, like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know what we had. He just didn't get the record until yeah. he saw the band live. Yeah. And in that year, that it, while they were sitting on it, Squints, the, the Christian label, was working it. Really, I mean, they did everything right. They just yeah. did a great job. Yeah, yes. And no mainstream lab label has ever done a, Christian know, a job, a, even a job. Okay. Every mainstream label that we signed to collapsed right after we oh, signed. Right, right. So no mainstream label ever did the job. They yeah. all were like, you know, we would get to the point, like I said, with Al Cafaro, oh, I didn't know what I had. From here on, from there, we had our own office at A&M Records. You got, we were the darlings of the label. Two months later, Al Cafaro's oh, gone. Yeah. Interscope bought over Universe, a and &M. A &M yeah. shuts down, and we get pushed over to Interscope, and Jimmy Iovine is looking after us. He's our basically our guy. And, and for and those of you who don't know who Jimmy Iovine is, he was the guy who produced all the Springsteen stuff, also owned Beats with Dr. Dre and sold it for like... Billions of dollars. He is Apple so Music. Very much involved with John Lennon. I mean, like yeah. very much involved with one of the richest yeah. guys. Yeah. yeah. But you know, at that time, you know, we get pushed over to Interscope, 
And from a major label perspective, we're on Interscope Records now, and there's this Christian label that's doing a hell of a job and doing all the promo work and records are selling. Hundreds of thousands of records are selling. So from their perspective, we're a Christian band in the Christian market and that's working. So why should they do anything? Huh. Yeah. yeah. Because it's being done for them. Right. Yeah. Exactly what they said in that documentary. Yeah. There was a real contrast between how hard one label worked for us versus how little the other label worked wow. for us. Yeah, that's crazy. They funded the album, they gave us tour support, tour and support that was it. Yeah. And then that we ended it. up in the same predicament when we did the third record, which was with uh, Mitchell Froome on Sony Jive, yeah. where the difference was is that the Christian label now had the problem. They were like, well, this album's not Christian enough. Right. And so they were trying to get us to, they were trying to remix songs and put like, choirs behind it to put it into the marketplace. Um, the songs still had the same spiritual content that they had before. Yeah. Um, and uh, Sony Jive then got bought out, I believe, by who was it? Barry Weiss and Doug Morris yeah. decided to swap places. Right. So any time a new head of a label comes in, they start shutting down labels. You know, they want to put their stamp on it. So they yeah. shut down Jive, who, you know, Jive had... All right, R. Kelly, which maybe wasn't a good sign. Uh, Pink. Chris Brown. Chris, I mean, <laughs> us. That's why they signed us. They have a label of controversy. Um, but, you know, you know, that drive gets shut down and we get pushed over to RCA. Again, a label that has, they don't own, they have no ownership. They don't know who we are. Yeah. They they're not champions of the band. And if you are signed to a major label that has... 20 artists that are making a lot of money, the other 100 artists, there's a big question mark on that. And if there's no ownership, you're just sitting there. Yeah. And we sat there for a year on RCA Records, and I said, we have to get out of this situation because we were in, it was like a stalemate. We were in a scenario where we didn't own the record. We didn't own our own record. All those royalties uh, were going to jo to RCA, so we couldn't really make money. Yeah, we were in a, in a in a place where if we wanted to tour and try and sell records on our own, if we wanted to go independently, we couldn't. Yeah, because RCA was getting the proceeds. So we got off of RCA Records, and then we owned it. But then you don't and then realize you get lost in, in yeah. lost in a big sea. At that time, there's, if that's what every yeah. that's what a hundred thousand right. other bands are trying. You to own do. everything. You have access to to, to to nothing. You know, you own everything, and you're you still can't make a living. So it's it's a it's one step forward, two steps back situation yeah. with with most bands. Yeah, yeah. And 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 also a lot of the weird things that were happening was like Scott Clayton was back in the picture. And he was telling us, well, I might get you guys opening dates with Alison Krauss. And then we get, well, her tour manager thinks that your music might alienate her audience because it's too Christian. Fast forward, I don't know how many years later, Stephen gets the opening dates with Alison Krauss. And she's like, I've been looking for you guys for however many years. She's a big Stephen fan. Yeah. And then Stephen and I go open that date and we get standing ovations and it was like didn't make any sense she was playing gospel music at her concert right she, so she's very christian it wasn't her that that rejected us no. but but the but it's the it's the it's exactly what johnny's saying when we came back into the market and this was the same way the first time in the market we were a christian band which made us lepers to the mainstream. Right, right. And the second time when we came around to do this in, in 2011 was the same story. Robert Plant loved our music. We was thinking about taking us on tour until he found out about all the Christian stuff. Every band that was a good opening slot that we could have opened for, the minute they, they looked us up and Christian band came up, that door slammed and shut. And then we weren't Christian enough to be a Christian band years right. later, so we were like in between the cracks. Like, yep. There's nothing we could do. Yeah. That's crazy. It's hard to make a living. Yeah. Uh, leave it to Christians. Always making life hard for everybody. <laughs> and I'm one of them, so I know all about it. 
Well, this interview with Burlap to Cashmere took place at the Burlap Fan Weekend in New York City in early September. And if you want a recap of that whole weekend experience, we give you sort of an audio journal on the last previous episode of Green Room Door, which is the season seven episode one, the season premiere. So you can check that out if you haven't already listened to it. Hey, we're only halfway through the interview with Burlap, so a lot more fun on the way. We love giving you some announcements direct to your email so we don't have to pay for social media posts and things like that. We love to communicate with you when we can. Encourage you to sign up to our email list because we'll just give you the announcements about our latest things so you don't miss a new podcast, a new playlist update, a new video, whatever it is. We'll keep you posted. Also, you get to have for free Song RX three days a week. It's a daily dose of inspiration. We present to you a song of the day with some concise, short spiritual reflection. It's it's a, just bite size, and it, it really kind of is a nice, I don't know, kick in the pants to get your day started. We have featured songs by Burlap to Cashmere recently. Also, Need to Breathe, Rich Mullins, Switchfoot, Melanie Penn, Andy Squires, and more. So sign up at our homepage. There's a link in the show notes, or you can go direct to utrmedia.org. One more housekeeping favor we're going to ask of you. If you're listening to this podcast on any podcasting app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, whatever it is, go ahead and hit the follow or subscribe button on that platform. That way we get to know a little bit more of who is listening and where they're listening. When we come back, we're going to go back to the bitter end and talk more with Burlap to Cashmere, and we'll field some questions from the audience as well. This is Green Room Door. Have you tuned into UTR's latest heart, soul, and mind playlist? Here's what you'll hear. Check out a whole bunch of hand-curated songs on UTR's Heart, Soul, and Mind playlist. Available now at Spotify, Apple Music, and Amazon Prime Music. Oh! Whoa! Got another one! So what's that? 59? No, that's 60! Look, there's two on the line! Frank, don't you think we should row in now? Are you kidding? Not when I'm having the best fishing day of my life! Frank, I'm already up to my knees in fish. How many more do you need? Hey, if we leave, I I may never find this fishing spot again! The water is just two inches from coming in the boat! Oh, great! A few more won't hurt then! Frank, you're gonna sink this boat. Bob, I work hard. Fishing is how I relax. I deserve this. I'm not going to bail water back here so you can keep piling on more fish than you can eat. Listen, my life is full of stress, and this feels great. I need to do this. Oh, look at that! I got another one! Whoa, that's it! We're going under! Grab the fish! Selfishness shows itself in how we spend our time and money. What are you doing that will sink your boat? Another message from Lifeline Productions, located on the web at lifelinepro.com. Hey, I'm Dave Trout. Let's head back to the bitter end to continue our conversation with Burlap to Cashmere. We pick up with Teddy sharing about the tension between being a mainstream band stuck in a Christian marketplace. When we were touring that live record before the Christian label was engaged, we were in, and truthfully, we never picked any of these markets. Yeah, right. If we if we would have picked the market we wanted to be in, it would have been the mainstream pop market. The first market we were exposed to because of the musicianship and and it, it, it Scott Clayton saw it as like, oh, this is kind of jammy. Let's try that market. So we were opening for Bob Weir's Rat Dog, Jerry Garcia Band, huge venues. Yeah, we were doing hit festivals. For huge 
huge, you know, it's a the jam band circuit. Strange. So that was where we initially, who embraced us, and we started from there to build up a following slowly. And then the record comes out, and it's a Christian, we're a Christian band, and so we start developing in that market, and, and we're very successful in that market. But as a band, we, we would never have chose that. But you probably just would have been successful anywhere that somebody put the sales up for you, because you because you kept Possibly. doing your thing, and it was like you know you didn't have I think Scott, all the support that you needed. Us not knowing then what we know now, I think Scott had the right idea because if you look at what that jam scene is now, it's Red Rocks, it's Leftover Salmon, it's all of those types of bands. You look at what John Mayer's doing now yeah. with uh, Dead and Co. Right? I mean that is the greatest career move that he's making because if he never writes a hit again or he becomes uh, someone that, for example, his music, he no longer has singles out on the radio. If he continues with that, I mean, he picked up a whole new live fan base now, right? A, a different thing. Yeah. So that probably, we probably should have stayed in that marketplace. But again, we just, it, it, it took us where it took us and they put the sales up, it caught wind and... I'm just going to add something, because I know we've got to move on to another question. I'm just going to add something to that, what we're talking about here. What happened, right, was nothing that we chose, right? These are things that happened to our band, right? We wouldn't have chose any of these paths. When, you're, when you say this to the people that are in charge, and their answer, and it's truthful, is, okay, so you're a Christian band now and you have success in that market. So if we were to take that away right now, where would you be? You'd have no success anywhere. So we're grateful that yep. any market has embraced us, although it's not what we chose, but the truth of the matter is, we don't know, had we chose differently and decided not to sign to a Christian label, we might not have ever done anything. Right, right, yeah, that's great. Like, a million other bands. Yeah, I read online once a guy said um, it's really a shame that for the Cashmere, um, you know, uh, uh, ended and, and when it did, they could have been, they could have been huge or something like that. And I thought, you know, glass is half full. You know, we we, we got heard, we got seen, um, we put a stamp on the map. Like, how many bands could say they even did that? You know. So we, we, we're proud of the work we did, and we look at it as glass half full, right guys? I mean, it's great, great accomplishment. Grateful for the fans as well. I think what happened is, what we didn't realize is, you become labeled by the fans that come to see you, and because we had one group, again, working so hard to promote us, eventually it became many Christians who were coming to see us. That defined who we, who we were. Yeah, we're, we're going to wrap up pretty soon, but if you have a question, raise your hand. I'm going to come to you with the mic so you have a chance to ask. Uh, considering how much of a pain in the ass you were for the Christian music conglomerate, where do the lyrics come from? Gosh, where do they come from? I, I mean, which one's particular? <laughs> they all kind of came from uh, imagination and... Uh, the craft of songwriting and I think it means the spirituality of it. The spirituality of it comes from a sincere place. If that's, yeah, of that's, course. Yeah, it's, of course, it's, it's uh, sincere. It's uh, from the heart, hopefully, and but also the craft of it. You know, you got to make things rhyme, make it work. When we were kids, when we were kids, Stephen had in college had just kind of like you found your. He at that time he very spiritual. I remember because I was like 15 and he was in college. Mm. And so I think that's more of the, the question. Yeah. How did they become spiritual lyrics? Is that your question? Yeah, was, was that your upbringing? Did you discover it on your own? Was it, uh, okay. You uh, well, I was, I was raised Greek Orthodox and then in college I did have like a born again experience and uh, I was very evangelical uh, for a period of time. And that's where most of the evangelical songs came from, you know, through that period. I know your music through Steve and Juliana West. Oh. And I, I love them. And I was in their back seat one time, and 
their two kids and they were singing along to Love Reclaims the Atmosphere. I'm going to try not to cry. Um, and I would like to hear more about that song. Well, I appreciate you bringing that song up. That's, uh, I had I had an illness, uh, really bad Lyme disease in my mid to late 30s, and uh, it was pretty pretty bad. It was knocked me out, um, and so that song was I was kind of like getting back to healing, but I was there was this melancholy feeling of what if I don't get better? What if I don't? You know, what if I can't function or do the things I love or, or go on the road or be who I am? And uh, what if that goes away? And it reminds me a little bit of like Moonshadow, you know? And if I ever lose my legs, I won't, won't I won't beg. Uh, and I have little songs in the back of my head, those Cat Stevens songs and stuff. And, uh, and also, I, I, I think it's a Simon and Garfunkel esque kind of thing, but I didn't write it. I'm trying to think, I wrote it in my bedroom. <laughs> I remember, I think I wrote the lyrics first, and then I was playing with this melody on the guitar. You're a songwriter, you know how it goes, right? You write, sometimes you write words first, sometimes you write the, the guitar first, second. And I think I wrote the words first for that particular song. Uh, I remember, I do, now that you brought this up, I do have this crazy memory of going, this is great. <laughs> Seriously, as a songwriter, you know. I'm a genius. The, no, 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 not I'm a genius, but like, how cool, you know, like, uh, I finished it and it sounds great. You know, you know you're know, you a songwriter when you, when you, when you uh, finish, a, uh, if you can finish a song, if I can write a song nowadays, I'm just like, wow, you know, it's, I did it. And that's how I felt with that one, because I knew it was different, and I knew it was something I've never written before, and the chords and all that stuff. I was proud of it when I wrote it, but as far as the dark, melancholy lyrics, I think it stemmed from my recovery. Yeah. And that was, and, and then Mitchell Froome was the one who basically convinced us that we have to sing it together. Which we had right. never done before. Yeah, we were like, what are you talking that out, right? about? No, we never, we like, we didn't learn that about, we've been singing together forever, yeah. and we never learned, like, hey, you know what? We we do this well together. So Mitchell made us sing that together yeah. in the studio. We were like, what are you talking about? He's like, let's go put on our sweater vests and go <laughs> sing that song. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, that's great. Thank you. Any other questions? Yeah, go ahead. Here we go. So, what was it like to finally have your music out on vinyl? Mm. Uh, <laughs> it, I mean, it was very cool. We were excited to do it, but. When it came out, the label shut down, so we had boxes. Thanks for bringing up a bad memory. No, no, it, it's actually really cool because because I just found a box of those. We've never had them, right? So, and and then uh, I remember at the time the girl I was dating bought a uh, a record player. She was like, "I got a record player. Let's listen to it on vinyl." And I was like, "Oh, that's a great idea." And we listened to it, and I was like, "This sounds terrible." No, no, I'm joking. <laughs> what is this? It's not hi-fi. <laughs> no, but it's really cool to have it. I actually still have one, I think, unopened in my closet. Yeah, but it's, I mean, uh, when, when we put that record out, there were, there was a plan in place that was, that we never, what happened was one, the, the week, uh, the week before the record came out, um, we had boxes of these and, and the CDs and, um, and the marketing plan that was in place was about to sort of be implemented and then they knew the merger was happening and so Jive put a freeze on spending. Yeah. So any publicist or any marketing that was going to happen for that record never happened. So that record, you know, the first few weeks, whereas our first record sold 400 something thousand copies, mind you, go 12 years later, no one buys records anymore, right? So that 
as a different market, different completely. Our first album budget was four hundred thousand dollars. Our second one was one hundred and fifty thousand. Twelve years later, records were not selling. The market was still in flux and trying to figure it out. And then they put a freeze on hiring, so that record sold fifteen thousand the first few weeks, first month or two, and. There was no campaign for PR marketing. It just got shut down. But what is great about that record that is not only is it on vinyl, but it was recorded similar to it have been recorded on two-inch tape. We only used Pro Tools as the medium. So whereas the first record, uh, here's a little fact for you guys: that that first record, I believe, was the first record ever recorded to Pro Tools. They credited Ricky Martin's Live and La Vida Loca, but everybody at the Hit Factory said no. It was yours because they were jumping into our room to look at this new tech, which was called Pro Tools. And at the time, in order to run Pro Tools, you had like a refrigerator of racks that could fill that whole yeah, back wall yeah, up. Yeah. And um, we hated it. We hated the way it sounded. We hated the way that they were moving things and tuning things. Granted, now if somebody wants to tune something, I'm like tune it, tune it, so I can go back to watching TV. But Mitchell did that record completely live no click tracks just us in a room he's like no 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 we're just capturing you greeks on tape and that's it and so at some point he would have to bring us in other examples of classic songs that for example weren't perfect so at one point we were having a hard time getting a drum beat in the song and the three of us were just like oh no it sounds terrible look it's all out of time we can't get it we just can't do it right just nudge it and, there, and then Mitchell put on, I remember, you remember when he put on um, uh, 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 Rod Stewart's Maggie May? And he was like, I want you all to sit down right here like we're with children. He's like, sit down, sit down, listen to this. And he put on Maggie May, and the drum beat comes in. Bah, bah, wake up, Maggie! And the whole song is, he goes, just listen to the drums. The drums were so out of time. And he was like, did you ever notice on Maggie Mae when you heard on the radio that the drums were this out? And we're like, no. He's, and then when he put on, it was Live in a Van, was the song. I still to this day can't even hear what we were freaking out about. Like, I can't, you listen to it now, everything sounds like it's in time because the three of us play so poorly together. <laughs> so, that's, that's a good point, John. Yeah, it's really cool. And for anybody out there, it was, it was right on the cusp yeah. of digital recording when that record, as Johnny said, when that record was being made, the guy who produced it, there was two guys, Jay Healy and Dave Rolfe. Jay Healy was so in that space that DigiDesign, who makes Pro Tools, was flying down to give him new pieces of gear that weren't released yet. To, to use to record this record cool. for it to be completed digitally. So it was it was right in that space of time where you could do that. And there are things that we recorded bass and drums to tape, then sent oh, yeah, to like the tools. intro of Eileen's song. We had a do, 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 do. They actually, for some strange reason, <clears throat> rather than just looping it in Pro Tools, they actually looped that intro because they wanted it longer, and they ran tape around the room like the old school 60s style where the tape was going from a chair to this and that and back into the machine again. They cut tape so that I can loop that way. So I mean, just to give you an example of things like that. But we John, have, can you clarify, it's not duct tape, right? They, they, it's scotch tape, actually. They, they, they taped it together. With, but, what, but it was just interesting because we had never experienced that. Once they started moving and sliding things around, we all got really disheartened. We we're like, oh, what are they doing? Also, the, that record was an incredible experience for us because we were in the Hit Factory, which is long gone now, but it was, I mean, we, we were, we were the using factory, the console. John Lennon's room. We were, we were using the console there. John, John Lennon did Double Fantasy on. It, it was such a fame, like we walked in and saw, you know, songs in the key of life, all the records that were made there while we were there. I mean, Mariah Carey was coming into the other rooms. Yeah. Maxwell was upstairs. Will Smith. I would go downstairs and hang out every day with this guy. I think his name was Vinny. 
He had long black hair, and it turns out he was Luther Vandross's producer. I was going to say Luther Vandross. But at that time that we recorded that record, it was almost traumatic for us because we were good at being a live band. That's what we knew how to do. And you would think that it would be the record would be recorded that way. So we're like, all right, we know how to be a live band. Let's record this live and then overdub over it. But it didn't happen that way. That It didn't work. No, they separated us like, like session guys and they put us to a grid and found out very quickly that, you know, we're not session we're guys. Not session guys. And, and, and what's interesting is uh, fast forward, I think a year or two later, we're at South by Southwest. And we played South by Southwest only twice. Once we had a tent gig, and the next time we got on main stage, Government Mule and Creed, and I believe that's where Mike knocked over all of Creed's stacks. <laughs> Johnny, I think what also it's happened, like when we first went into the studio after yeah. pre-production, we were like all greased up on fire. So we started our, our first, you know, I guess, I think it was Skin of the Burning. Then little by little, we all started to get separated. Yeah. Started ordering food from Manja, Manja Baby. <laughs> that the producers actually had to have a meeting with us and said, "Please, guys, cut it down to seven meals a day." <laughs> <laughs> and, and it got to a point because we didn't want to record. They, we didn't want to record, and 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 so to anyway, we we they separated us all. They punished us. And they punished us. At one point, we they were took the couch all away. we were doing were in our lounge because we had a private private lounge. All we were doing were watching the Godfather trilogies. <laughs> As New Yorkers would, right? And at some point, you'd go in there, and it, I'd get to the studio, and it was early morning, and I would find Mike on the couch with Robbie, and everybody passed out in the lounge with blackout shades so that you didn't see any light in the room, and then they were working in the studio. And I remember one time they they, uh, they piled all the furniture and made a blockade yeah. so none of us could go back into the lounge. And, and get comfortable. And, and I remember Dave Rolf came up to me, and he was like, man, Dave Rolf. Dave, if you, if you ever see this, I say hello because I love you. Um, he was a really good-looking guy. He looked like he looked at Michael Knight. Right? He was like Knight Rider, and he used to wear the MC, the big square jawline, his nice hair. It was, I think it was him. <laughs> and he said, "Guys, you make an album like this once in your life. I mean." Why don't you go get inspired by the sights of New York? Meanwhile, we're all from New York. Like, Why don't you go and read a book? And then he goes back inside, and we were such little punks. I think Mike was the first one who said, we're paying how much for this album out of our album budget? And he threw a chair, and then we demolished their barricades. <laughs> so that, I think, is some of the stories that Steve Taylor might have left out. They, anyway. they, they, also, they also tricked us into getting good takes. Yeah. Uh, for me, I couldn't get the vocal takes for like mansions and stuff. I, I had a hard time. Uh, most of my first time recording, I was super young. Uh, and the trick was for me was they bought me a bunch of Guinness. So I was drinking down Guinnesses and I nailed mansions. You know, so so Chop Chop was next. So they they realized that if I had a couple of Guinnesses in me, I'd get the vocal takes they wanted. So I was you know getting free beer. Yeah. But that being said, Dave shows up to South by Southwest. I'll go back to this and make it quick. And I remember he came over to me, or to the band, and he said, you're right. Because I was fighting with them. The, no, surprise, surprise. We were all fighting with them. We were all fighting with them, but I'm like the biggest pain when it comes to sound. And uh, I went in and I was like, I don't like that snare drum. Can we make it sound more like this? And they would like throw down the clipboard and be like, you don't like my snare drum, bro? Right, it was that, that kind of thing. And uh, Dave came over to us at South by Southwest because he was there and he was holding the burlap CD and he was like with his good looking everything. He was like, you're right, with a twinkle in his eyes. And we did this all wrong. We should have cut this album live because he had never seen a live show. The guy who was co-producing the record. I thought he, no, he never came. I don't think he ever saw us live. Well, we're gonna uh, we're out of time, but yes. I, one last question. Uh, you can keep it brief. Obviously, there's some diehard fans in the room here, but also there's fans listening to this. You know, after the fact, um, you know, you had 450 over 450 people show up for the Kickstarter to make that possible. Um, so, so what's your what's what's kind of a message you have for the fans who are kind of still here for you? You know. Now in your twenty, having a twenty fifth anniversary. Thank you. Can we do it from Mike down here, or like we'll do it in a row? If you want, yeah. Mike, want you start? Sure. I'll just repeat what Johnny said. Thank you. Um, 
we've, we've received countless messages throughout the past 25 years from fans sharing how our music has inspired them, how it shaped their lives. And uh, we paid a lot of attention to those messages and they really, they have had a, a, a great impact on us and we're grateful uh, that, the, that the fans were there and that, that our message could make a difference. I'd like to give a special thanks to each and every one of you out there um, that support a Burlap and still is a Burlap fan. Thank you to all. It really means the world to us. Thank you. Oh, that's it. Just thank, thanks, guys. Thanks for sticking with us. And, and hopefully, hopefully we'll, uh, I don't know, maybe at some point get it in us if we get the inspiration to record something. Not, a, not an album, but you might get a song. I might get a song. <laughs> wow. If you're lucky. <laughs> wow. <laughs> We're old, guys. We're old. <laughs> We're squeezing this lemon as much as we could. Um, I think from, from my perspective, from our perspective, we've done all the wrong things as a band, right? You know, if you're a fan trying to be a fan of this band, we've made it really hard. <laughs> we're going to put out a record, then we're going to disappear for 10 years, uh, then we're going to put another record out, you're never going to see it. We never pull stuff then we're on social kick, media. Then we're going to do a pledge, then we're going to do a Kickstarter and it fails, then we're going to do a pledge and that, and then we put a record out and here we are, like, the, this band has been all over the place. For anyone that has been there for 25 years or 5 years or whatever it is, has had to work to try and figure out what we're up to and that's amazing and thank you and I don't know that it's going to get any better <laughs> but thank you yeah yeah what everyone else just said it sounds right we thank you so much for all your support throughout the years awesome alright let's thank these guys for their time yeah. alright that was Teddy Robbie Johnny Mike and Steven uh, five of the original band members of Burlap to Cashmere, an award-winning band uh, celebrating their 25th anniversary since their debut on the scene back in 1998. Uh, it is a real treat to talk to them um, because they don't do a lot of interviews. In fact, they don't do a whole lot as a band. They just sort of get together every now and again. And so it's been fun to work with them and try to do something a little bit bigger and more robust and Thanks to you and uh, the 450 backers who were a part of the Kickstarter campaign. Um, we're going to be able to see a brand new live album of theirs, a new concert video, and a new feature film documentary about the history of the band. All that's being worked on in production right now, and all that should be coming out next year, 2024. Um, what else is going on with the band? Well, uh, Steven and Johnny are in the middle of a nationwide tour as a duo. They're doing a lot of folk standards and, and cover songs, um, kind of celebrating the history of 60s and 70s folk music. And they're also weaving in some burlap originals. And from what I hear, they've been getting standing ovations, rave reviews. It's called the Sounds of Silence Tour. Um, check if it's coming to a city near you. They're playing a lot of fine arts theaters, and it's it's all over. It's like a 30-plus city tour. So um, that's still going to be going on for uh, the next month or so. So because you made it to the end of this episode, I do have a little gift for you, a little cookie, if you will. After we say our farewells and our outro and our goodbye, we're going to be playing for you um, something that's never been played before uh, because uh, it's bootlegged audio, basically. Um, Burlap did, as part of the fan weekend that we've been talking about, they did a private concert at the Bitter End, and it was it was so fun, so incredible. It was intimate, and we were up close and personal. It was amazing. Um, and, uh, and we have a bootlegged song... Uh, that that is from their 1998 debut. Anybody out there? We're gonna be playing that. It's not from the upcoming live album. It's just sort of you know the janky audio that we recorded, but it turned out really nice. And we're gonna be featuring that. You get a, a flavor of just how good they are live. And that is coming up um, right after the outro. So stick around for that. Special thanks to the historic venue, The Bitter End, in Lower Manhattan in New York City, uh, where we recorded this podcast. Um, it was a part of the Burlap to Cashmere Fan Weekend, 
And of course, thank you to any of the participants that were a part of the Q&A session. Um, it was such a great conversation and hope you enjoyed listening as well. And of course, we can't leave without saying a big thanks to our amazing support team. We have folks just like you who are generous and kind and support uh, this work as a nonprofit. And uh, we couldn't make podcasts like this um, without their help and support. If you want info about how to become a supporter, you can go to our homepage, utrmedia.org. You can find us and follow us on all the social media platforms at UTR Media. And also, all songs used on this episode are with permission or under fair use provisions. I'm Dave Trout, and you've been listening to Green Room Door, a production of UTR Media, an independent, listener-supported nonprofit ministry in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and online at utrmedia.org. Now stick around for the bootlegged version of Divorce Live by Burlap to Cashmere. Oh, you're not.